Hello and welcome to episode 122 of Inside AgriTurf, the podcast that brings you the stories, the interviews and the discussions of relevance to all associated with or interested in land-based engineering. And I'm your host, Chris Biddle. I'm recording this on the 1st of February 2024 and have been musing how on earth to follow the past two episodes featuring Dan Schultz, an agribusiness psychotherapist from the US, and Andrew Harvey, a well-known former lead presenter on BBC Television News and then the ITN News Channel. If you haven't caught up with them yet, I can thoroughly recommend them both for plenty of thought-provoking content. And here's a request to do tick the box marked follow on whichever podcast platform you use so as not to miss a single episode of Inside AgriTurf. So I thought I'd introduce a new monthly feature, AgriTurf Agenda, an audio magazine which will allow me to look at the current issues of interest or relevance to the land-based engineering sector. Now, as you are here, I had to make a last-minute change to the content of this episode due to the late-breaking news about the collapse of the small robot company. So for this episode, I'll be looking at the disappointing rate of agritech adoption, how small-scale is often better than big-scale, the use of tractors as a political weapon, trade shows, yeah, that old chestnut, and still... On the high-tech theme, I'd like to tell you a little about the battery recently implanted in my bag. We are, they say, in the fourth age of agriculture, agriculture 4.0. Now, academics may disagree about the definition of the first two ages, but there is no doubt that farming practices will change from agriculture 3.0, which was spawned by the Industrial Revolution, to today where the use of AI and autonomous machinery will be the future. And I go back to that old saying, they are not making land anymore. In fact, quite the reverse, land is being degraded through intense farming and environmental restraints, and which are reducing the amount of land available for food production. So practices have to change to meet the demands of a growing world population. And it is forecast that our prime movers, the tractors, which have become ever more powerful, faster and heavier, to be replaced with machines that are smarter, smaller, more versatile and less damaging. But it's a revolution that has just not begun in any meaningful sense. I see from figures recently issued by the UK's Agricultural Engineers Association, the AEA, that the average power of tractors registered in 2023 was 173.9 horsepower. And that's the average. And it's five horsepower more than in 2022. And the largest increase in sales came in the 240 to over 300 horsepower tractors. A recent report from NFU Mutual says that 20% of farmers invested or were planning to invest in agritech during 2023, and that was 13% up on the previous year. However, the vast majority, over 60%, were either unconvinced or not interested and had no plans to engage in agritech, which itself is a very broad term ranging from products, services, 
or applications used across all farming applications. And it is against this background comes the news that the small robot company, arguably the UK's leading exponent of specialist autonomous farm vehicles, has gone into administration this last weekend. The company, formed in 2017 by Ben Scott Robinson and Sam Watson-Jones, had been battling for financial support since last May, when its lead investor pulled out. It then turned to crowdfunding to support its ongoing development and managed to raise raise pledges of £500,000, half a million pounds, on the opening day, against a target of £1.5 But at the time, they acknowledged that they needed at least three to four million to fulfill their current planned schedule. The company gained considerable media interest through naming their initial robots Tom, Dick and Harry, and later added Wilma, and aimed to produce the precision of robots and AI to improve the way that food is produced and minimise chemical usage. In a statement, the company says that it is with great sadness that after a long fight, small robot company today proceeds into liquidation. We have created something remarkable in the last six years and have co-designed our service with farmers successfully delivering their holy grail, a world-first grass weed detection at field scale. This went commercially live in September with huge potential. Our technology delivered value at profit, with customers waiting, but we could not secure the required investment to scale. But unfortunately, the investment did not land before our runway ended. We believe, they say, we developed something that will be a cornerstone of how farms are run in the future. But unfortunately, with this attempt, we were too early for the market, adding, Our chapter in the fourth agricultural revolution is over. We hope we have inspired others to continue the mission. Now, I do find it extraordinary that investors in general do not recognise the vital importance, the cost savings, nor the wider picture of an essential industry in transition. A transition that food producers around the world agree is inevitable. Small robot company had gained the active support of a who's who of the farming industry. Legford Estates, owned by Waitrose, Lockerley Estate, owned by the Sainsbury family, Oxford Farming Conference Chairman Will Evans, Tom Martin, Leaf, that's linking environment and farming, their ambassador, were all reported to have trialled and signed up for the company's services. Now, obviously, I've no knowledge of the details of the company's pitch to investors, but my guess would be that if it wasn't the clever and innovative robots that were the issue, but small robot companies' business model. It was sold as a farming as service, an autonomous contracting service, if you like. Indeed, the company's press release concede that it was too early for the market. And rather like the panel on Dragon's Den, However innovative the products being presented to them, the killer question when they are asked for investment is, when will I get my money back? In truth, and with some sadness, 
our industry needs companies like the small robot company, innovators who will do all the hard yards before inevitably the major industry players cherry-pick the technology that suits their long-term plans without having to go all through the hassle and expense of R&D and testing. The worldwide development of autonomous machinery is highly competitive. Countless innovators are trying to crack the market. A few will succeed, but I guess many more will fail. And for those listeners in the turf sector of this podcast title, it happened in the robotic mower market. Companies such as Israeli-based Robomo toured the shows, made a lot of noise, and created a fledgling market. At the time, most of the leading manufacturers sat back until they were ready to jump in, and production could be scaled up and an acceptable price point could be achieved. With result, robotic mowers are fast becoming mainstream. So best wishes to Ben and Sam for whatever lies ahead. I'm hope and trust that their work will not be in vain. That NFU mutual report about the rate of agritech adoption I mentioned, the phrase perception is everything appears to be in play. The perception is that automation is only for larger farm operations. That view, however, was strongly challenged by Kit Franklin of Harper Adams University when I talked to him about the hands-free project for an episode of this podcast. For two years, growing a single hectare of crop with our autonomous machines, a retrofit Izeki tractor and old Sampo combine, essentially showcasing the fact that it could be done. You could farm without sitting on the tractor with today's technologies. And then in the last two years, then we've grown to the 35 hectares of the Hansbury farm over five fields. But in the last year, we did successfully manage to grow crops across the whole farm. We grew wheat, oats, and beans. The major breakthrough was uh, then unloading that on the move into the tractor alongside. And then and not just the fact that there was two tractors driving themselves, they're actually talking to each other. So the combine is telling the tractor where to be and when it should get out of the way because there was a turn coming up and that sort of thing. For me, it's about showing our industry to be as technically advanced as it is to a wider audience. You mentioned the word economics just now. I believe there was a paper that was published reasonably by people from Harper's um, trying to work out the economics of autonomous farming. Were there any headline results from that? The paper models the model of farming that we're putting forward. So rather than as your farm gets bigger, you get larger machines that a single driver can do more with. You essentially keep with small machines, but you develop it as a swarm. So you go from one unit to two or three units as your farm gets bigger because they don't need drivers, they drive themselves. So the one person who would drive your really big tractor can now manage three smaller and critically cheaper systems to work together. And essentially what the paper shows and the modeling we did show is that brings down the cost of production. Reduction in that cost of production happens at the low end of the farming scale in sense, small acreages. So we could make essentially a hundred hectare farm, which currently growing cereal crops wouldn't be viable, would be very borderline viable. We can essentially make it viable by the adoption of autonomous machinery. How interesting. Over three or four years, the team at Harper's demonstrated that with 
modified existing machinery, automation on the farm could be scaled up. But how to roll out that research into practical applications? That's quite a separate issue. Just before Christmas, I had a battery implanted in my bag. The battery is a smart device about the size of a matchbox inserted near the base of my spine, connected to a lead that runs the length of my spine. It monitors my muscle movements and automatically adjusts the amount of neurological stimulation according to my movements. So what led up to this? I'd I'd had a series of knee and Achilles operations over the past few years, some of which didn't go exactly to plan. As a result of the nerves being cut during surgery, I had been left with long-term pain and reduced mobility. The system called spinal cord stimulation helps reduce pain levels and thence will improve mobility. It was developed and tested in Australia and has recently been made available to UK patients. Now, I have to charge myself up every morning, and no, I don't have to nip down to the local filling station and stand against a car charging unit. I have a battery charger connected to a flat charging pad that I simply place over my clothes near the site of the internal battery, and it takes about 15 to 20 minutes to fully recharge. The procedure was carried out by the neurological team at University Hospital Southampton in early December and was activated and programmed on a laptop to my precise needs two weeks after the operation. The initial sensation is like pins and needles in the knees, which quickly subsides and I don't really notice it working. It has only been activated now for about four weeks and I'm already finding some benefit, but I'm told it will be several months before it becomes fully effective. It is an extraordinary piece of kit, which, had I been a private patient, would have cost between forty and £50,000. But fortunately, I was accepted to have it provided under the National Health. The Southampton Neuro team have been magnificent, as have the representatives of the manufacturers of the device, Saluda Medical, who have been on hand during the installation throughout. So for me, indeed, another good news story about the NHS. That was, if you hadn't already guessed, the sound of farmers blocking motorways around Paris this last week, and these protests have been taking place across Europe during the past few weeks. In few countries is direct action as direct as it is in France. Over the years, French farmers have become notorious for their regular expositions of anger, blocking motorways with their tractors, disrupting transport, dumping mountains of produce, or sometimes something worse outside ministers' doorways. All too often they have the tacit, if weary, support of French citizens who rarely have much sympathy for the government and its bureaucracy. And all too often, the hapless French Prime Minister is forced into a climb-down, cancels the offending new proposals, and usually pays for the concessions with his or her job. Things are rather different this time. The protests are bigger and the note of violence is louder. 
Gabriel Attal, the fresh-faced new Prime Minister, has already paid a visit to a farm, listened earnestly to the grievances and promised a swift retreat from the decision to reduce the bureaucracy governing payments to farmers. So what's it been like living in Paris, surrounded by a ring of tractors? Here's Dan Pratt, a regular contributor to Inside Agriturf, and I caught up with him last week. I live in northwest Paris, nowhere near a motorway. And obviously it has a knock-on effect. If there's an accident on the motorway, then you feel the impact. Uh, obviously going through the capillary in the vein, which are roads, A roads, B roads. And, uh, but even down my street, there was huge traffic jams. People were stuck in traffic jams for hours trying to get around them. My little boy quoted when I was taking him to school in the morning. He said, it's very busy today, Daddy. Why? And I said, I tried to explain to him that there were tractors on the motorway 20 miles away. And uh, he was uh, (laughs) struggling to understand that concept. But um, but yeah, like I said, ultimately, uh, people in Paris, especially in France, especially, they don't lie down and take things. As we know, when they try to raise the pension age, the best they their response was, well, I'm afraid that all we, ha- all we can do then is burn down Paris and, yeah, <laughs> as a response rather than sending a strongly worded letter, which other nations may do. Have the farmers got general public support over there? In On the whole, yes. They're very passionate about their livelihoods and, and their culture here in their farming industries. They like everything to be French-grown, French-bred. Um, they are very passionate. And there's a lot of farmer shops, either, even around my area, there's a lot of farms farm shops that are a bit more expensive obviously normal but they're always busy so i think a lot of people are very respectful of and very proud as well of their farming community and farmers in general yeah. when they do protest there there is a level of sympathy that goes along with that and like i said it was a, a great inconvenience on monday but on the whole people were the general public in my opinion from what i witnessed being out and about all day were in support of it uh, good well, thanks for that on the spot report dan that's, uh, that's okay. excellent France is the biggest agricultural producer in the European Union. But it is not the only country where powerful farmers' lobbies are shaking confidence in governments. In Germany, some 6,000 tractors converged on Berlin last month in protest at proposed levy on meat, eggs and dairy products. The two-week protests were also in response to a plan to charge road tax on agricultural vehicles. The farmers were not mollified by a retreat on both policies. They were incensed also by what they saw as government green policies imposing a new tax burden on a sector ill able to bear the cost of laws to reduce carbon emissions. Now, in the Netherlands, where disposing of the slurry from vast herds of cattle has long been an environmental nightmare, the government proposed a drastic reduction in nitrogen emissions in 2019, ordering the shutdown, possibly by force, of many livestock farms. The result was an upsurge of fury and the emergence of a new political movement, which last year stunned Dutch politics and became the largest party in the upper house of parliament after provincial elections. The farmer citizen movement, BBB, was only set up in 2019 in the wake of widespread farmers' protests, and the BBB aims to fight those government plans to slash nitrogen emissions. And for rural voters, the main incentive for backing the BBB was to protest against cuts in nitrogen emissions, according to an Ipsos poll for public broadcaster NOS. 
So what about here in the UK? Could the tractor become the latest political weapon? The farmers' lobby in Britain is less powerful and works hard to keep its issues out there. Issues such as policies linked to the green agenda, the ban on some pesticides and measures to reduce emissions and promote conservation that would cut farmers' income. But let's face it, farming and food production appears to be low on the government's agenda, mainly because the public's attitude towards farming is, at best, ambivalent. Yes, of course, food is a contributory factor to the cost of living crisis, but a recent cut of about 20 pence in a litre of milk to around pound thirty was much heralded. But to me, that is a ridiculously low price for such a valuable commodity compared with, say, shot-bought bottles of still water at the same price or more with some of the so-called premium ban brands. In this country, motorists go mad at being held up by a tractor on the A30 as they head for their holes in Cornwall. But boy, do the Europeans know how to do a protest. Not for them holding up a banner with a loud hailer. What do we want? Blank, blank, blank. Now, sounding like a broken record. And just to prove the point about government inaction, DEFRA has repeatedly underspent the farming budget, amounting to more than £200 million in the past two years, according to newspaper reports. The government pledged that by the end of this parliament it would spend £2.4 billion a year on farming as the industry transitions away from the EU's cap model. But figures from DEFRA show an underspend of £110 million in 2021-22 and £117 million in 2022-2023, according to The Guardian. That means £227 million of promised funds have not been spent on the farming budget. NFU President Minette Batters told the paper that the underspend was unacceptable, especially in the general election year. Well, I hope you enjoyed that smorgasbord of topical issues. There will be another episode in next month in March. Now, I was going to sound off about the relevance of shows these days. You know, there are three specialist shows for the turf care industry scheduled between September and January. Surely that will strain the resources for many would-be exhibitors. Each, of course, will point to their differences. But for a relatively small industry sector, that is surely overkill. In a way, I'm conflicted over the issue of shows, for they do provide an opportunity for mixing and meeting, and I've always enjoyed the social element attached. But it will only encourage those exhibitors who choose not to attend to run their own open days or events, putting even more time constraint on dealers. I do think it's inevitable that there will be a strategic coming together of the shows over time. But I guess that, as always, the market will decide. Thanks for joining me. Stand by for an interesting announcement next week on a strategic development for this podcast. I'm Chris Biddle, and this is Inside Agriturf.